Today brings us to another of those encounters that I said chapter 12 was full of. Um, This time it's centering around uh, Jesus' ability, his power, to deliver those who are under the oppression of demonic activity. Um, That... I kind of pointed it out before, I'll I'll keep pointing it out because that's just what I do um, to remind myself, not to remind you guys. I know you guys remember every word that I ever said, right? Yeah, okay. So, um, (laughs) this section of Matthew's Gospel deals with who Jesus is. Who he is in his authority, who he is in his power, who he is in his identity. And this, this really comes right to that point, uh, that he has the ability to be judge and healer and prophet and Messiah. So if you would, as we normally do, stand with me as I read from Matthew chapter 12, and this is another one of those really ambitious sections for me, this is going to be verse 22 through 32, I know none of you can believe it, all right. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself." How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, who do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us to study, to learn from, to grow. Uh, Father, we pray this morning that we would handle your word with care, we would handle it correctly, and Father, most of all, we would seek to give you honor and glory and praise for what we read. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat, please. So, unlike Luke, Matthew is not really concerned with chronology, so he doesn't tell us how soon after Jesus going off with the crowd that we looked at last week, uh, this happens. He, he doesn't tell us that this was immediately. He just he uses the word then, which is literally just a, uh, a an opening phrase. At some point later, this happened. A man was brought to Jesus who was blind and mute and demonically oppressed. Now, there's a presumption there that the blindness and the inability to speak were a result of the demonic activity. This isn't the first time we've seen Scripture tell us that demon possession or oppression, depending on which word you prefer to use, uh, 
uh, has physical consequences. There was the the demon-possessed men in the cave in the land of the Gerasenes that Jesus cast out. Remember, they were living in the tombs and they couldn't be bound with chains. They would break the chains and, and so on and so forth. So there's, there's physical manifestations to this kind of activity. Jesus healed the man. His vision, his speech returned to him, presumably because Jesus cast the demon out based on what the rest of the passage says. Matthew doesn't tell us that Jesus cast the demon out and the guy's sight was restored. He just says that Jesus healed him. Everybody who was there, um, now this could well have been the crowd that Jesus went away with, because uh, remember in, in verses 9 through 21, Jesus went away from the synagogue with the crowd, and he healed all of their illnesses, and he cast out the demons, and he restored the lame to the ability to walk, and so on and so forth. So it's possible that this is the crowd that Matthew's talking about, they were amazed. Why? Because it's not every day you see somebody who is blind and mute suddenly with the ability to speak and to see. They probably knew this guy. They probably had seen him before his demonic uh, possession and knew him before he was stricken. And so they knew that this was not an act. They knew that this was not a charlatan. This was not some TBN special uh, where somebody was planted in the crowd to give the appearance of a miraculous hearing. Uh, or healing, not hearing. Hearing was a different person. Um, he may well have even been a beggar at the synagogue, like the man with the withered hand. Because remember, the, the lame those who were afflicted would come to the synagogue and beg. So it's possible that he would sit outside the synagogue. And and I have to imagine that this demonic manifestation probably came along with things like, oh, I don't know, hearing voices and talking to people who aren't there. And maybe some of those things that we would commonly look at as maybe schizophrenia and those sorts of ailments. So this guy was probably known by the crowd. This was a genuine affliction the healing was genuine deliverance and so the people saw it and they were amazed and they asked the question could this be the son of david the son of david the coming king the deliverer the one who was going to rescue israel from their oppression because that's what he just did for this guy And the idea here is that since Jesus has the power and the ability to heal the sick, he can cast out demons, he speaks the scriptures with authority, even in the face of these experts, the Pharisees and the scribes, the people who know scripture forwards and backwards, Jesus can stand them on their heads, theologically speaking. With all of that going on, maybe he's more than just a prophet. Not that being just a prophet is a small thing. Because a prophet is God's spokesperson. So a prophet is somebody that you probably ought to listen to. Especially in Israel at this point in time when they've gone 400 years with no prophetic voice until John the Baptist shows up. And then Jesus not long after. Maybe he's more than just a prophet. Maybe he is the coming king. 
it really wouldn't surprise me if the people who took who saw this and asked the question, if it was more than just a murmur in the crowd. Now, it probably started that way. But what do people do when they have a theological question? Who do they seek out? People who know theology, right? It happened just the other day. A friend of ours posted a question on Facebook. Those of you that are studied in theology, what do you think about black? And there were a bunch of us that answered. Some of us answered, it's a really bad thing. Others answered, no, it's not. It's perfectly okay. I was in the first group. Her brother was in the second group. So it would not surprise me if this question was carried to the Pharisees. Look, you guys know God's Word better than anybody else. You've heard what He can do. You heard that at His touch the leper is healed. That at His touch the blind can see and the deaf can hear and the mute can talk. That the withered hand of the man at the synagogue is healed. You've seen this. You've heard this. Could it be that He is the one? How do you think the Pharisees felt about the possibility. Because at every turn, Jesus has made them out as fools. The Pharisees were still a little bit bruised by His answer concerning healing on the Sabbath with the the man with the withered hand. Jesus goes to the synagogue, minding His own business, on the Sabbath as was His custom. He probably wasn't even going to be the speaker that day. He was just going to listen to what was being taught. And this man with the withered hand comes up, and the Pharisees instantly ask Jesus the question, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus' response was basically, That's a stupid question. People are important to God. Of course it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And he healed the man. So the Pharisees probably still had a little bit of a little bit of a sore spot because Jesus told them you're missing the point of God's law. The sick and the hurting need ministry even on the Sabbath. Contrary to your teaching. This morning we we went through the the parable of the good Samaritan where the priest and the levite passed by on the other side. They were so wrapped up with their ceremony and their tradition, which came out of God's law. The priest has to be able to offer the sacrifice. And the Levite has to be able to tend the implements in the temple. Has to. And so because of that requirement of ceremony, I'm not going to go over there and check out that guy laying alongside the road because he just might be dead and that would make me unclean. And so, no. Jesus is dealing with the same issue here. The Pharisees were now trying to get back at Jesus. They're conspiring to destroy Him. They're conspiring to strip away His popularity. And so their response to the question, could this be the Son of David? Their response, nope, He's only casting out 
demons because he's in cahoots with Satan. Because that makes sense. That kind of accusation, though, would cause Jesus' followers to question, do I want to be associated with this guy? Now, Matthew makes a statement here. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize this, okay? It is possible that it was revealed to Jesus what they were thinking by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is possible. I think it's unlikely. Okay? Because you have to remember, the one thing that Jesus didn't have that we all have is a mind that has been darkened by the effects of sin. See, when Jesus was 12, he was having theological debates in the temple. All right? I'd be uncomfortable doing that at 42 years old with a master's degree in theology. Jesus did it at 12. He was not your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill person. His perceptiveness wasn't clouded by hatred for somebody or by prejudice against somebody. He knew people, not because he studied people through a clouded lens, but because he was the maker of people. And so when Matthew says he knew what they were thinking... I really think it's just because Jesus knew what they were thinking. They are opposed to him. They're opposed to what he's teaching because all of their teaching is, this is the guardrail that God has set up. As long as you don't cross that guardrail, you're okay. You stay inside that box, you prove that you're a son of Abraham. And God has to keep you in his kingdom. To which Jesus has already replied, You're not sons of Abraham if you act like sons of Satan. So here, he knew what they were thinking. And so he says, a kingdom that's divided against itself is not going to stand. If Satan is giving me the power to cast out his demons, then his kingdom isn't all that powerful to begin with. What sense does this make? How would it serve Satan to allow somebody to drive his own minions out? That's, it's absurd. It just doesn't make sense. Why would that even... Why? How? Then he really pokes them. Okay, now, now I've mentioned before that Paul is the master of sarcasm. Okay? But Jesus here knows how to hit to a point with a point. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons cast them out? If I'm casting them out by the power of the devil, then what about all these other Jewish exorcists out there? Because there was a group of them. There were a bunch of people. This was a common thing of the day was for people to go around casting out demons. Some of them were charlatans, and some of them were actually trying to help people. Others were trying to make a buck. So Jesus says, basically, if it's possible that these Jews are casting out demons by the power of God, then why isn't it possible that I am? 
And if it's not possible that I'm doing that I have to be doing it by the power of Satan, then then these people that you're commending for doing it, aren't they doing it that way too? Whose credibility is at risk? Pharisees now. He's calling them out for hypocrisy. Basically, he says, if I'm guilty of casting out demons by the power of Satan, which, by the way, does not line up with Jesus' message at all, then it's likely that those others that he's talking about are doing the same thing, but they're commended by the scribes and the Pharisees. And then notice how he concludes that sentence. Therefore, they will be your judges. If I'm guilty of doing this, then they're guilty of doing this. And if they're guilty of doing this and you're falling in league with them, guess what? That's your condemnation. But, Jesus says, if it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that I'm casting out demons, if it's by the power of God that I'm casting out demons, then at the very least, I must be a prophet. And if Jesus is a prophet, and they are levering, uh, levering, they are laying these accusations at his feet. Things are not going to go well for them. Look at verse 29. This is, this is a parable, basically. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is like, okay, let me put this in simpler terms for you. It's like he's talking to a bunch of imbeciles, a bunch of idiots, okay? So let me, let me put this in easy terms for you. You can't break into somebody's house and take all their stuff unless you tie them up first, okay? You don't, this is Jesus using this example. You can't break into somebody's house and steal all their stuff unless you tie them up first. You don't see that happen on the news today. You don't see somebody, you know, a massive break-in occurred and the owner was asked to sit quietly on the couch while the crooks took everything out the front door. That's not how this works. In some parts of the country, that's going to wind up with the robber getting shot. In our world today, it's normally going to wind up with the homeowner being shot. Jesus says you can't just walk in and steal stuff from somebody's house unless... That person is out of the way. In other words, look guys, I wouldn't be able to cast the demons out. I wouldn't be able to plunder Satan's stuff unless I'd already gotten him out of the way. Satan's bound up. Satan's taken care of. I wouldn't be able to do this if the power of Satan was loose. You get it? That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. I wouldn't be able to cast out the demon if Satan were still roaming free in his house. 
the point that Jesus is illustrating over and over and over again. How can you accuse me of being in league with Satan? How can you say that my power comes from the devil? If A, these guys can do it and it's not, and B, if I'm using Satan's power, then he has no power because he's divided against himself, and C, it wouldn't be possible unless he was already tied up out of the way. How does that make sense? It doesn't. It goes to show the desperation of humanity when we come into contact with the holy. I've mentioned this to some of you before, that our flesh does not like the holy. We don't like being around it. We don't like being confronted. In our flesh, we don't like being around that which has been touched by God. We don't like it. In our flesh, it makes us uncomfortable. Think back to before you were saved. For some of you, that might be hard. Because you were saved at a young age. (laughs) Not because of how old you are. I'm not making that joke. But think back to before you were saved. You ever encounter that that real holy person, that person who's the, the presence of God in their life is really, really, really there? How much did you like hanging around with them? We don't. Our flesh does not like that. And now Jesus takes that idea that the Pharisees are set up against him because they don't have an interest in the holy. They don't have an interest in obedience to God. And he says, whoever is not with me is against me. In other words, there's no neutral ground when it comes to the kingdom of God. We can think in our minds, we can th- and I've heard people ask this question, well, what about that poor innocent tribesman in the deepest, darkest reaches of Africa? Is it fair for him to go to hell because he's never heard the gospel? And the best response I've ever heard to that, if there is an innocent tribesman in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa, then he will be saved. If he's innocent. What does the book of Romans tell us about being innocent? (laughs) Nobody. Nobody fits that category. See, we like to think that people are neutral. That that if they haven't heard the gospel, then they have to be neutral towards God. That's not the case. Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. There is no middle ground. Those who don't gather with me, those who aren't in the process of gathering in my disciples, which, oh, by the way, that's what we're supposed to do, right? Those who aren't gathering with me are doing what? They're out scattering instead. Instead of bringing the people in, they're pushing the people away. Whoever doesn't work in accord with Christ, bringing in disciples and growing the kingdom, and growing the church, is opposed to the kingdom, and is set about for destruction. Period. That's how our flesh operates. 
Now, I'm probably going to spend the rest of our time on these last couple of verses, 31 and 32. This is a warning to the Pharisees. And I don't think this is an accusation against the Pharisees. I don't think Jesus is saying that they've actually crossed this line. I think he is telling them, you're really close to going someplace you don't want to be. I think this is a warning to them. This is a warning that has caused countless hours of debate within the church. That has caused anxiety among believers. That has caused fear. That has caused uh, a lot of contemplation. The first thing I want you to notice there in verse 31 the first word, at least in, in uh, the, the translation that I read to you, is the word therefore. And that will probably be the, the same as just about the rest of uh, the translations out there, is the word therefore. And if you see the word therefore in Scripture, what is the cardinal rule? You need to figure out what it's there for. Okay? Therefore is a word that ties this idea follows that idea. Because A, then B. So everything that comes after the therefore is directly tied to what came before. What came before? Where do your disciples get the power from casting out demons? If they get it from God, then I get it from God. If I get it from Satan, then they get it from Satan. Right? The strong man has been bound so that the demons can be cast out. And if the demons have been cast out, then it was because the power of Satan has been divided against itself and Jesus was using a power that was greater than the power of Satan. Therefore, every sin... And blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Therefore, listen gang, you're treading on dangerous ground. Because even though we may use the name of God in a vain and useless fashion, and therefore violate one of the commandments, even though we may deny the work of Christ, even though we may violate every one of God's laws, Jesus says, all of that is forgivable. Except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, he is not promising that every sin in every person's life is going to be forgiven. Obviously, the, the application of the gospel still must be. A person has to have a saving relationship with Christ in order to receive mercy for their sin. Okay, he's not, he's not getting rid of the gospel. But he says, there is one sin that there is no forgiveness for. 
And that is speaking against the power of God. What is it? Why is it so heinous that there's no forgiveness? He clarifies a little bit when he says, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit. Blaspheming is speaking against, or speaking uh, negative about. That's what blasphemy is. Okay? This idea here, and if we take it in conjunction with the rest of the passage, is the Pharisees had said that the power that, uh, that Jesus used, the power of the Holy Spirit, was actually the power of Satan. This is something that expresses a willful and explicit rejection of the one who grants and enables repentance. In the case of the Pharisees, they just proclaimed that what Jesus did was Satan's work. They were denying the power of the Holy Spirit. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. We know from the New Testament that nothing was created except by Jesus, right? Okay? But if you look at Genesis chapter 1, what was hovering over the face of the waters? It's the Spirit of God. Okay? What changes the heart of man? Same Spirit. Okay? So, this idea here is that God doesn't have any power. God doesn't have power in a life. God doesn't have the ability to cast out a demon. God doesn't have the ability to change a person, to regenerate them, to rebirth them. God is powerless. Now see, just Jesus says, every other sin can be forgiven. But at this point... To willfully, explicitly reject the power of God is to say that God has no power. Now, why would there be no forgiveness for that? Because if you have just rejected the one who has the power to change who you are, if you've just made that rejection, you have just willfully, explicitly denied the power that God has over your life, God's not going to make the change. I'm willing to guess that there are some of us who've wondered if we've ever crossed that line. You ever wonder that? Have I ever committed the unpardonable sin? I've said and done some bad things. I, I know that I have I've said a lot of stuff that I really should not have crossed my lips. Have I crossed that line? Well, who causes conviction in the life of a Christian? The Holy Spirit does. It is the Holy Spirit within us that convicts us of sin. Okay? Um, who causes us to turn in repentance? It's the Holy Spirit that does. Okay? Who causes us to be aware of sin in our life? The Holy Spirit does. If you genuinely are concerned that you have ever crossed that line, that is probably the most telling sign that you haven't. 
Because to a person who has, they don't care. They don't have the new birth. They don't have the conviction for sin. They don't have the desire to repent. It's not there. If we can trust the Holy Spirit to change the nature of who we are, so as to generate the heart of repentance that causes us to turn to God, that causes us to accept Christ in the first place, I'm pretty sure we can trust Him to protect us and preserve us against this sin. Now, I said before, I don't think Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for violating this particular boundary. I think He's warning them. And that comes with uh, the, the rest of this, because he says in verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. See, they didn't speak against the Spirit specifically. What they said was, the only way Jesus is able to do this is by the power of Satan. They were speaking about Jesus. What Jesus is telling them is, the line that you need to be concerned with crossing, Pharisees, the guardrail that you're about to take a flying leap over, you who are so concerned with the law of God, you who are so concerned with setting up boundaries and things not to do, you need to be aware that there is a line and your toes are butted right up to it. You can blaspheme me, you can even, and he's not given permission, he's not giving them license to sin, he's saying that all of those things can be forgiven. But if you cross that boundary, there's no going back. None. So, this warning is actually an act of mercy. God is showing mercy to the Pharisees. Now I want you to think about that in relation to the Great Commission. I have spent my time here trying to emphasize how integral to the Christian life making disciples is. And one of the things that we are called to do is to be witnesses. We are called to go and share our testimony with people and share the gospel with people. And one of the biggest things that we are guilty of is determining who is and who isn't worthy of hearing that message. Well, I'm not going to share with that guy because fill in the blank. He'll never accept Christ because he's a fill in the blank. We set up these boundaries. The Pharisees were Jesus' biggest opponents. Everything that they did during his public ministry was to cut him down. The only possible exception to that was Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, we know you're a teacher sent from God. We admit to that much. Now explain these things to us. 
the rest of the Pharisees, when Jesus spoke to them, it was always correction towards repentance. Even the group that turned him over to the high priest, who then turned him over to the Roman governor to have him executed, Jesus showed mercy. So that means, if we're to be Christ-like in our life, the application of this is, we need to stop setting up artificial boundaries as to who we will and won't share the gospel with, and who we will and won't show mercy to. Again, going back to the Sunday school lesson, and you know, I'll be honest with you, when I was putting together my, um, my outline for Sunday school, I wasn't really paying that close of attention to a passage that I've read a hundred times, to a parable that I've heard millions of times, right? I wasn't really paying that much attention to how these messages tie together. But when you look at the Samaritan who crossed a social boundary to minister to that Jew, who crossed an economic boundary to minister to that Jew who had been beaten and robbed, who crossed a religious boundary, because even though he was a Samaritan, they still followed the same rules of cleanliness that the Jews did. They were just a little bit twisted. He crossed every line to minister to somebody who should have been untouchable. We're not so good at that. I think we need to pay a little bit more attention to Jesus' statement back in chapter 12, verse 7, where he says that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Because I'll tell you, it's very easy for us, especially in Harrison County, Mississippi, especially in the United States, especially in the 21st century, it's very easy for us to take on the attitude of the priest and the Levite in that story. who had to make sure they kept their pious actions and did their church duty. It's very easy for us to make sure that we're here Sunday morning when the doors are open. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not telling you to stop coming on Sunday morning. That would be silly. <laughs> That's why I'm here. What I'm saying is, God cares less about us being here right now than he does about us showing mercy and grace to those who are out there. Are we willing to cross those lines and show that mercy? Are we willing to cross those lines and make that sacrifice to those out there? Are we willing to be who Christ has called us to be? I don't know that anybody has ever crossed the boundary of the unpardonable sin. I don't know that anybody ever has. It may be one of those things that is only theoretically possible and has never happened. I don't know. What I do know is that as long as I have breath and they have breath, I have a duty to share the gospel with them. And so do you.